Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Here to present his debut satirical novel, Channel Blue, is Jay Martell, which he disappeared. There he is, coming out of the shelves. I'm sorry, I, got, I, I was momentarily lost in the children's book section. I didn't, couldn't find my way out of the labyrinth. I don't know how, if this, I even need this. Thank you so much, uh, everyone, for coming, all my friends. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, and thank you uh, to Skylight Books for uh, this is this is stop two on my book tour, uh, which has two stops, and so <laughs> um, and Skylight was part of both of those, so, and I really appreciate it. And uh, hey, Sean. Um, so um, this book it, it comes out of uh, uh, sort of a difficult uh, time for me personally. I was um, I was wor started writing it. Uh, about seven years ago, and um, at that time I'd been working for 20 years as a writer for TV and movies, and um, was feeling that at that point that my words were very uh, sort of valueless and re replaceable, um, as is as is you know that's part of the the, the hazard of, of that kind of work, but I was. It, Everything was exacerbated by the fact that there was a, a writer strike going on, and uh, the studios had stopped buying screenplays, and uh, I had just bought a house that I couldn't afford, and um, this is all combined. Hey guys, <laughs> um, this is all all combining to to make me feel like even more kind of irrelevant than than usual, and um, so. But I would go every day to this uh, small studio apartment where. Uh, I was writing and uh, sitting amidst the, uh, the, the the sort of patchy, gunky carpet and the stains on the wall and wondering, like, what am I doing? And, uh, and I realized that as I was sitting there trying to write that I still felt like my writing had value and that I still had something to say. And this... Uh, the contrast between this and my circumstances made me laugh out loud. And um, I don't know if any of you have made yourselves laugh out loud uh, when you're alone. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's usually a, kind of a social act. But, uh, <laughs> but so when I, when I make myself laugh and I'm by myself, I think, oh, that, that's probably funny. And, uh, <laughs> and so I, uh, I said, oh, if I think this is funny, maybe someone else will think it's funny. So I started writing a story about uh, a down-on-his-luck screenwriter who is uh, having a hard time finding, uh, you know, uh, relevance in his work. And, and uh, you know, and then it just sort of took off from there. And, and it was completely, uh, you know, 
fiction, of course, and not autobiographical at all, but I was able to, um, it was, I, I was able to kind of pour every day into, I had this thing that I could kind of uh, put everything that I felt was true or happening to me at that time into a story. And, um, and then after four or five years of this, uh, I started showing it around to people and they said, well, this is science fiction and, 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 uh, and which is actually, it's here, it's in the science fiction section, I think, which, is, which uh, blows my mind because I never set out to write a work of science fiction, but you know, I never set out to write a novel to begin with. So um, for while I was writing it, the, the story became, um, a refuge for me. It took on a life of its own, and it took me like the the protagonist uh, from a place of desperation to a much better place. So I'm very I'm very grateful, oddly enough, to this story and um, uh, to all of you for sharing the experience with me. So I'm gonna I'm just gonna take you on a whirlwind tour of the first uh, 60 pages or so of the of the book and. Um, then I guess we're going to do some questions, or I don't know what, why anyone would have any questions since I talk to you all every day, <laughs> so or most of, most of you. Um, so the main character, uh, Perry Bunt, is a down on his luck screenwriter uh, who's uh, teaching a class, a screenwriting class at a uh, community college. Perry's students generally fell into two categories that he labeled the geniuses and the nut jobs. The geniuses were laconic, arrogant young men and women who dreamed like Perry of being successful writers. This class was a tedious necessity for them, a stepping stone to surpassing their poorly dressed, caffeinated instructor and being recognized for the geniuses they were. When Perry praised, they listened attentively. When he criticized, their eyes glazed over as they traveled in their minds to the ceremonies where they would gratefully gather their Oscars, pausing long enough in their acceptance speeches to attempt to remember without success the name of that discontented, sloppy little man who was once their teacher. Perry disliked these students the most because he had been one of them. Then there were the nut jobs. These were students like Dorina Stump, a born-again 52-year-old night nurse who was honing her skills to deliver the good news to Hollywood. Her 200-page screenplays inevitably involved heroes who were handsome Baptist ministers, villains who were Volvo-driving atheists, and miraculous events. Many, many miraculous events. Perry thought about reading them the same way a doctor thought about treating a penicillin-resistant strain of pneumonia. Finally, or in, Perry, or in Perry's mind, ultimately, there was Amanda Mundo. Amanda transcended categorization. Never had someone so charming and normal taken Perry's class. But this was only the beginning of Amanda Mundo's uniqueness. In his successful years, Perry had met many beautiful women. There had been stretches of Perry's life when he'd gone weeks without seeing a female he didn't want to have sex with. In Hollywood, unattractive women were encouraged to move or hide themselves in basements. <laughs> and in Hollywood movies, this erasure of the non-beautiful went a step further. Every heroine's name that Perry introduced into his screenplays was followed by a two-word character description. Extremely attractive. <laughs> Unless the heroine was someone you might have a hard time imagining being extremely attractive, such as an aging field hand or a crippled fishmonger, in this case, Perry would describe them as extremely attractive in a down-to-earth way. <laughs> Had the movie executives read anything else, such as good-looking for her age or pretty despite her disability, their heads might have exploded. Extremely attractive in a down-to-earth way was the minimum. 
But for all this, Perry had never met or dreamt of anyone like Amanda. If she were to appear in one of his scripts, he wasn't sure he'd even be able to describe her. Extremely attractive in a natural way, stunningly beautiful, but not like any woman you'd see in a movie. It took several classes for Perry to figure out what was different about her, but eventually he did. Amanda, for all her beauty, didn't seem to know she was beautiful. It was as if she had been raised on a remote island by the Amish. She became the star of Perry's fantasies. In her smile, he saw deliverance from the squalor of his lonely apartment. In her lilting laugh, he heard the love that would help him believe again in his writing. In the touch of her hand, he felt the confidence that he would one day not have to masturbate quite so often, but also, paradoxically, the need to do so almost immediately. <laughs> so um, uh, it turns out uh, uh, Amanda, and I'm summarizing here, Amanda is, a, the, is an alien. Um, <laughs> she's part of a, a company that produces Earth as a giant reality show uh, called Galaxy Entertainment and broadcast it to the other side of the galaxy uh, uh, to this advanced civilization, or so-called advanced civilization called Eden. And this is a little bit of, about Amanda. Amanda loved Earth. Ever since she was a little girl, all her favorite programs were on Channel Blue. It was a fixture on her first telescreen and the first channel she watched when she arrived home from school. Like most viewers, she had initially been attracted to the nearly constant stupidity and violence. But she'd seen something more in the Earthles, something that as a, as a young Edenite growing up in a culture that emphasized rationality moved her deeply. She loved how Earthles would literally kill themselves climbing tall mountains and diving deep into oceans and walking on wires strung impossibly high. And why would they do these things? Were they being chased by predators? Was there something they needed for their survival on top of the mountains or at the bottom of the ocean? No, there was no reason. They did these things only because they wanted to prove that they could do them. How could you not love that? She also loved their sense of duty and honor, the misguided way they would sacrifice themselves for meaningless causes. She even loved their bizarre need to divide themselves up into tribes, countries they called them, and celebrate their tribe as the best of all, even if it meant flinging themselves into terrible battles and certain death to prove it. And most of all, she loved their faith in a higher power to rescue them from those terrible battles and certain death, a power that never manifested itself in any tangible form whatsoever, much less rescued them. They always ended up dying. But, incredibly enough, in this inner mind was the best part. This fact didn't shake their faith in the surviving Earthles. On the contrary, it strengthened their faith because the higher power must have wanted it that way. Seriously, how could you not love that? Channel Blue was actually thousands of channels bundled together, but Amanda's favorite channels all originated from the tribe that called itself the United States of America. Because of its, relatively, because of its relative prosperity, strident religious beliefs, and relaxed restrictions on the use of firearms, the USA was the source of most of Channel Blue's hit shows. This, after all, was the government that murdered people for murdering people and started wars to prevent them. It was a country that took all the madness of the Earthles and distilled it into just a few time zones. And though the citizens of this nation had no way of knowing their amazing exploits were being beamed to billions of viewers on the other side of the galaxy, they seemed to have some innate sense of their primacy. America's number one, they would chant at patriotic rallies and international sporting events. This is the greatest country in the world, their leaders would often say. And as far as entertainment value went, they were absolutely right. <laughs> so uh, Perry and Amanda break into, uh, well, okay. So, <laughs> so what happens is that uh, the ratings on Earth have been bad. They've been bad for a few years. 
uh, people have gotten sick of how uh, stupid and desperate the, the, the people on Earth are. And so uh, entertain, the Galaxy Entertainment has made the decision to um, basically blow the Earth up and get a lot of ratings for a big series finale. And they're going to do this with a series of kind of disasters, earthquakes, leading up to, um, you know, ultimately, the last stage of it is they're going to send out this pin that has um, a woman in a burqa and you turn it upside down and the burqa disappears and it says made in Israel on the side. And they're going to they're send that to a few of the leaders of the Islamic world. And that's going to kind of set this plan in motion. So Amanda... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, it's a lot more believable when you read it in the book. <laughs> um, the, so Amanda smuggles Perry into the headquarters of Galaxy Entertainment to show him uh, what Channel Blue is so he, she can enlist his help in trying to save the channel. And this is the first time that Perry or, or the reader is exposed to what is actually playing on Channel Blue. The wall on the right played a series of fast clips that showed men fighting in a bar, riding soccer fans crushed under a fence, and jets colliding in midair. These assaulting images were accompanied by a rapid-fire announcement. Bar fights, soccer riots, air shows, every fatal earthal entertainment, catch it right now on Deadly Fun, playing exclusively on Channel Blue 752. More clips raced by, a bear chased by a camper, a excuse me, a bear chasing a camper, a jogger bitten by a mountain lion, and faster than Perry could keep track of, various surfers being attacked by various sharks. If you love seeing him in the great outdoors, turn to Earthles Feed the Animals, now exclusively on Channel Blue 753. Then drunks tumbled downstairs, fell out of windows, and vomited on themselves. Their screwed up brains just won't let them stop. Earthles Under the Influence, now on Channel Blue 754, 755, 756, and 757. The onslaught of frantic images continued. Kitchen spills, naked people shaving their body hair, power tool accidents, a man setting his hair on fire with a tiki torch, flickering by faster and faster until Perry, his head aching from trying to keep up, was forced to avert his gaze. He became distracted by a screaming teenage boy running across the ceiling as a volleyball hit him in the head. Two groups of boys in matching shirts and shorts flung balls at each other. Perry quickly recognized this as dodgeball, a routine ritual of humiliation in gym class. Jim, Perry said? A staple of the channel, Amanda replied. A producer came up with the idea of broadcasting Jim. No, no, of Jim. Perry frowned. You invented Jim? <laughs> Come on, Amanda said. What does Jim have to do with education? You didn't think there was any real point to it, did you? <laughs> While Perry tried to fathom this, the shots of gym class suddenly gave way to a middle-aged man in a hospital gown lying face down while a medic medical technician stood nearby. An odd cartoon starfish appeared in the foreground and in a high-pitched voice yelled, Now let's go up his ass! An unseen audience laughed and applauded as the screen cut to the dark, shadowy footage of a colonoscopy. <laughs> this is a show? Why else would you put a camera up there, Amanda said. Please, you didn't think there was any actual medical value, did you? So, uh, <laughs> Perry and Amanda are caught in, uh, and, uh, by security guards looking at this footage, and they're brought to the office of Amanda's boss at Galaxy Entertainment. Perry and Amanda were herded through the doorway of a large office. At one end, behind an improbably large desk, a nine-year-old boy in a suit, his hair stylishly spiked with gel, 
sat watching an array of screens floating in the air and talking to no one Perry could see. Look, just tell him I loved what he did with the tsunami, the boy said. Everyone here loved it, and we loved the Russian earthquake too, but just not as much. It wasn't just as disastrous as we were expecting. Perry glanced at Amanda. That's your boss? She shrugged. It's a youth-oriented industry. <laughs> the boy executive, still staring intently at his screens, gestured for Amanda and Perry to sit down. Perry read the shiny silver nameplate on the front of his desk. Nicholas Pythagoras, production executive in charge of executive production. <laughs> Nick, as he was known to both friends and enemies, was indeed a prodigy. Most children employed by Galaxy Entertainment were 13 or 14 before they attained executive positions. <laughs> but Nick had everything, youth, style, and a keen business sense. Today, he also had a terrible headache. He had won the job of producing Earth's finale by presenting an ambitious plan to accomplish this well under the budgets of his rivals. But cutting corners had taken its toll. After only two months of escalating cataclysmic disasters, he was two weeks behind schedule and way over budget with the bulk of Armageddon to come. <laughs> Look, I don't care how many megatons or how deep, all I'm saying is it wasn't enough. It was more like, a, like an earth quiver than an earthquake. Nick paused. I'm not trying to be hurtful here, but I thought we all agreed that this was going to be the, end, the event foretelling the end of the planet, not merely an opportunity for another benefit concert. <laughs> Look, I don't have time for this, the boy continued. Just, just tell him I loved it, but I have some notes. And we definitely need to talk before Flight 240. I just received the script and have some concerns, especially after Russia. I don't want the plane to bounce off the damn reactor. <laughs> Nick waved his hand, and several of his floating screens flew in tight formation into his desk. He turned to Amanda and Perry. Riders, he muttered. I ask for an earthquake, I get a shiver. I ask for a simple terrorist act, and they turn it into this whole song and dance. The boy executive turned his attention to one of the remaining floating screens, and while played, which played a video on the, of the two security guards walking in on a Perry and Amanda. Nick smiled and sat back in his chair. Maybe this isn't going to be such a bad day after all, he thought. He had always perceived Amanda as a rival, albeit one at a decided disadvantage. On his side were youth and ruthless ambition. On hers were merely creativity and intelligence. And while her advantages were just as often disadvantages in the entertainment business, she had unsettled him on occasion with her innovative ideas. Now, with this huge, vi huge violation of company policy, she was as good as unemployed. Con contemplating this fine turn of events, Nick leaned back in his chair. What gives, Mandy? Seriously, I know you've always been soft on earthles, but bringing one in here? He laughed in a short burst. Have you completely lost your mind? Amanda stared into space as if, as if lost in thought. Perry, by now a sopping wet knot of fear, couldn't take it anymore. I don't know anything, he yelped. Amanda glanced at Perry with a bemused expression, then turned to Nick. He's lying, she said. He knows everything. I even told him about the finale. Perry stared at her, his jaw agape. It doesn't really matter, Nick Pythagoras said. Just by being here, he's off the channel. And you, Mandy, you will have difficulty finding employ as a barker on an amusement asteroid. He swiveled to the security guards. Escort him to the green room. The tall security guard moved in quickly and grabbed Perry by the collar. Don't you want to hear his pitch, Amanda said. Nick frowned. What? He has a great idea for a show. I, I think it could keep us on the air. For a moment, Perry wasn't certain that that was certain that he couldn't possibly be the he she was referring to. But then she smiled at him like a proud mother entreating her six-year-old to share a story with a family friend. Perry, who hadn't had a great idea since VHS was a format, suddenly felt like he was sitting on a trap door over a bottomless pit. 
Amanda continued oblivious. Mr. Bunt may be an earthal, but he also happens to be a fantastic writer. That's why I contacted him. We've tried everything we could think of. I thought maybe he could come up with an idea that would save our jobs, and you know what? I was right. Nick chuckled derisively. Come on, an earthal writer? Entertainment on this planet is bullshit, please. They still enjoy watching people pretending to be other people. For Adam's sake, they watch grown men giving each other brain damage while chasing a ball. And if you were going to go crazy and hire an earthal, Perry Bunt for crying out loud. Why not Lucas or Spielberg? Amanda frowned. Do you think I'm an idiot? Do you think I'd risk everything for less than the best idea I've ever heard? How much is your finale running? Nick shifted in a seat. I don't know, 20 trillion or something. Last thing I heard, it was over 30. You know it's going to be 50 by the time you roll credits. Nick flung one hand out over his desk. What the hell does that have to do with anything? You bring some earthle into my office and start writing me about my budget? Get to the damn point. Amanda leaned into him. I know you have a lot writing on this, but even you have to admit that we would be heroes if we found a way to boost ratings, save the channel, and avoid spending the last 20 trillion. Nick pursed his lips. After a moment, he sighed. All right. He nodded to the security guard who released Perry and stepped back. Got a couple minutes. Give me the pitch. Nick and Amanda stared at Perry, who felt the trap door open up beneath him. Anyway, thank you. Any question? Any grudges? Any <laughs> any uh, relationship issues that I haven't covered with you individually? <laughs> Have you read Jonathan Lee? Uh, no. Funny stuff. I think he's done reading too, but he has uh, satirical yet you know, future oriented sci-fi-ish stuff. Okay. Check him out. Brian? Was there a part of the book that you got stuck at, or did the whole thing kind of go flow by flow by flow? Did you ever get stuck? Mm hmm. Yeah, but I had the luxury of time since uh, absolutely no one was waiting for it. So, <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah, so it was easy just to put it aside and, and wait, wait till something, an idea occurred to me that would help get it unstuck. Yeah. Why is his name Perry Bunk? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, no, I just I just wanted something that sounded um, uh, somewhat like someone who was down on their luck. I guess Perry Bunt sounded like it to me. But uh, no offense to anyone named Perry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this being your first novel, how did you approach structuring the story? Very good question. <laughs> um, Excuse me? Oh, yeah, 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 yours was great. I, I'm sorry I didn't say that was a great question, too. Um, <laughs> um, I did a very detailed outline and, uh, you know, sort of like a chap chapter by chapter, and I had a, you know, a few people look at it to see if it made sense. And, um, and, I, and then I, once I started writing it, like anything else, you know, like, as you know, like any outline you have always gets kind of thrown out once you start writing. So it went through a lot of changes between the outline phase and the writing phase. But, um, yeah, it was, it was interesting just seeing, um, seeing how much it changed as, as the characters started, you know, sort of talking and moving around. 
question than Andy. Okay. <laughs> um, Take it. Having written movies and TV, was it hard to switch gears into writing fiction that wasn't going to end up in a visual medium? Yeah. Um, Great question. <laughs> <laughs> Look. Guys, it's a, yeah, I was going to say this isn't a competition, so uh, it wasn't. It just got, it just got, just got nasty. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. The hardest part was writing uh, action sequences because it's very easy when you're writing uh, a. It, for any screen medium, just to write, you know, they fight, you know, and and, uh, and Jack wins. As and then when you you start write you write that in a book, and it's just like, okay, wait, no, I have to, you have to do all that work. Um, there's actually a section of the book where the 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 sort of uh, when the when the main characters get together. Uh, Oh, I can't really talk about that. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, God. But yeah, no, that, that was the main thing. Because, you know, dialogue, I think part of the reason we get into writing TV and movies is because we li love to write dialogue and make people talk. And that, and that of course, is always, uh, that was always the easiest part of this. And when I, when I got to describe, you know, having to describe things, having to write action, um, those are the sections I found myself going over again and again and again and again and coming back to repeatedly every time I rewrote and writing them again. Yes, Diane. So before it became sci-fi, were the characters aliens and what was the original vision? Um, you know, it was just, the, the original idea was this guy, it was a screenwriter who, um, who was having a really hard time uh, with his life and and then he know, and, and the, the the basis of the the whole book was that I had this idea that what if you were, um, what if you start seeing your your uh, screenplays come to life? Like what if you had, um, you were walking around and the things the the things that you had written and, and kind of tossed aside started happening, and that's the first beat of the story is that he notices that his student screenplays are are happening in the world, and he's and he can't. Explain this because the things he's the thing he's always told his students is that you have to be believable. You have to, and that's why you can't have like a flying baby or a, you know uh, a twenty-story doghouse. And then like he starts. Well, those are I just pulled that out of my ass. That's not real. But but he he starts looking online and he sees like these things are really happening out there. How do I teach my students? So. That was the base. That's that's that that kind of led to everything else. So you discovered the sci-fi element in the outline. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Rich. Have you picked up any salmon brushes uh, left over that threat from the broker records? Oh no. God, uh, I don't think it's really uh, offensive to any one uh, group or another. I hope it's kind of an equal equally offensive to a lot of different groups. But no, yeah, I, gosh, a fatwa would be the most I could hope for at this point, <laughs> given the state of the publishing industry. Uh, I, sh I guess I shouldn't say that out loud, but. <laughs> author, Los Angeles author begs for fatwa. Uh, well, anyone else? 
Professor Cristal, could you? Uh, <laughs> was it Truman showing your line? You know, it wasn't. It's funny. It, it, it's, but it's just, it's clearly uh, an influence, you know. Like, it, it's just like, there's so many, th that's, that was one of the great things about, uh, the great experiences for me about writing it was that, it was, writing it was like being in a fever dream and just kind of fall, let, letting the story kind of take over and fall in the story. But then, of course, once it was done, I looked back and I said, like, oh, you know, Clearly, you know, this is Life of Brian, this is, you know, this is the Truman Show, this is, you know, Men in Black, this is The Matrix, this is, you know, so. It's got, it's got a lot of, um, yeah, it was, I mean, it, the, just kind of the whole concept of reality shows and um, the, the, and the idea of reality shows being, sort of taking over the world had been in my mind for some time, like, um, I think probably before the Truman Show, but but afterwards, and, that, and I think that's kind of very much in the zeitgeist of that of the thing that we progressively find more entertaining, just people interacting as themselves. So have you turned it into a feature script yet? <laughs> not, not yet. I, I'm 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 trying to isolate my disappointment in different mediums, like. <laughs> <laughs> One medium at a time to get rejected in. <laughs> How closely do you feel that this story, or at least the rhetoric in the story, reflects your personal views? Um, it's a very good question, Joel. My initial question was going to be do you think there's another country out there, and anyone in the United States? Uh huh. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it it does reflect my views generally. Um, but that said, uh, I'm, you know, when I'm when I'm writing, when I'm when I'm writing satire, and I'm in that mode, I'm I'm somewhat of a different person than I am day to day, you know, and and as I. You know, like a caricaturist will heighten things to for a comic effect, and it's just the same same deal. Like I'll push, I'm gonna push things to get a laugh, hopefully. Right. Anything else? Thank you all. Thank you all for coming. I really appreciate it. That was great. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.